According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, we're looking at uh, two crowds of believers that were both motivated by Paul's example to uh, engage in the ministry. And uh, we see this in uh, verses 13 and following, or 14 and following. Most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord, or being persuaded by the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage. They've been emboldened to speak the word of God without fear. And all the circumstances Paul went through became a goad. It motivated this service. The problem is there was one group that was motivated for all the wrong reasons, and we've been looking at them. The other group, of course, was motivated for all the right reasons. And, uh, and so you have, I've been calling them the good guys and the bad guys, and that's probably not fair or even right, uh, because the bad guys are also saved. Uh, they're just wrongly motivated, and uh, we, that needs to be adjusted. And uh, we see it here. Some, to be sure, verse 15, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. And so you couldn't have two widely different groups of people and what they're motivated by and and why they're doing what they're doing. But they're both doing the same thing. Both groups are preaching Christ. And so we reach a what then question in verse 18, what then, or so what, or what do I think about this, or what should you think about this? What does God think about this? And he answers only this, that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. And so uh, we started Wednesday night. I'm going to continue this morning as we deal with the what then and the so what and the only this and the, well, if nothing else, uh, they're preaching Christ. So isn't that a good thing? (laughs) Can we at least rejoice in that? Find something to rejoice in, even though uh, obviously the motivations are completely wrong. And uh, how do we apply that in our circumstances? So we'll pick that up. Before we do, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking the Father to set aside our distractions, to humble us under the authority of His truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word and the blessing that it is for us to be here this morning. We're thankful for the the blue skies and the sunshine and the dry roads. Father, we're thankful that uh, we have a facility in which to meet. We know we have uh, some sister congregations, uh, some of which can meet this morning and some of which cannot as uh, families continue to recover from the storm. And we just thank you for all of your faithfulness in every regard. Father, we call upon your faithfulness now here in this place to open the eyes of our understanding and bless our study. Father, we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So if you are following the, uh, the outline, we are dealing with a what then question. And this is what we introduced in point four. So I'll skip ahead to that. There we go. A what then question. Okay. What then or why or so what kind of a thing. There's several different idioms and they're, they're curious when they're found in the New Testament and sometimes they're not taken well. 
Um, some, uh, when, sometimes they're taken as an insult uh, by modern readers, by you and I as we read this. Uh, Jesus would ask a question, you know, like, what is that to you and to me? Uh, and it sounded like he was being very insulting to his mother uh, when she pointed out that they ran out of wine at, at the wedding they were attending. Uh, and those questions, though, uh, that question or most of these questions are not insulting questions and they're not designed to be dismissive in any way. Uh, but they are often rhetorical and they are often useful in order to introduce something else. And that's what's happening here. So when he asks this what then question, it's very similar to how he asked the what then question in Romans chapter 6. You know, do we, do we, con- or I'm sorry, Romans 3 3. And, and uh, he asked this question, this what then question. And, and, and sometimes that, that can be a very useful device for argumentation or debate or, or discussion. And, uh, and uh, I, th- I think he does so here quite effectively. So he says, what then? Remember back in verses 12 and 13, Paul had wanted the Philippians to know about his circumstances. Well, why is that? Why did he want them to know about the circumstances? If, uh, as it says, I want you to know, brethren. Okay, so quite clearly, there was something they didn't know, and he wanted them to know. Not only what the circumstances were, but how the circumstances turned out that they turned out for the greater progress of the gospel on Paul's behalf. And then beyond that, there was a consequential response by the brethren in his proximity. By the brethren in his proximity, either other believers uh, in Rome, if you accept the traditional view, or other believers in Ephesus, if you accept what I think is the preferable view for the origin of these prison epistles. Either way, there were brethren in his proximity that were motivated to get out there and be preaching Christ. And, uh, and, but now we get the, the question that's asked, why? What's the big deal? Or, or what do we say about this? Particularly with respect to that negative group that's uh, motivated by strife and envy and trying to cause Paul discomfort. That, uh, that can't be a good thing, can it? And yet I like the why questions. We can't always answer why questions. A lot of times uh, the Bible gives us more why questions and very few why answers uh, that we have to content ourselves to simply accept it for what it is and walk by faith and take it from there. But occasionally a why question does get answered, as is the case here. He says, only this, only this. Okay, so what then? Only this or only that. And uh, so he's going to answer the why question himself with one thing and one thing only, and maybe that's all he could come up with, (laughs) okay? You know, if you're looking for something positive to say, you know, you're looking for something positive to say about a crowd that is preaching from envy and strife, that is proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition, thinking to cause Paul distress in his imprisonment. If that's the group you're trying to find something positive to say, what are you going to say? <laughs> okay, Not much. Well, how about this? They're preaching Christ. Okay, At least they're preaching Christ. And that is kind of the only thing he can say about it as he answers this question. But I do kind of like it. The, uh, such a question is a fundamental principle of expository preaching. It's a question that, that I sometimes uh, don't always express in the best possible way, and I should get better at that. It's a question a lot of times in doctrinal churches where you get all the, the passages are explained and they're exegeted and the doctrine is developed and we have you know 13 points on this and 17 points on that and we're very clear on what it says. But do we go the final step to ask the so what question and say, okay, so what? What do I do with it? 
How do I live it? What does this mean to me? How does this, uh, why do I need to know this? Why do I care? What does God think about it? Okay, We want to take it to that point. So that, okay, I know that in any doctrine, in any doctrine that I study, I not only don't want to know what it is, what it says, what it means, but what's expected of me? How does it shape my thinking? How does it shape my conversation? How does it shape my, my actions? See, So what do I need to know about this? Why do I care? What does God think about it? How does this truth shape my attitude? Okay? See, I believe the rapture doctrine is, is very powerful, not just to know that it's true and to know that, it, that it's going to happen. Somebody yesterday said, why is it so attacked these days? Why is it that, that churches, more and more churches, more and more pastors are not only denying the rapture, they're attacking it. Very hostile to Tim LaHaye and very hostile to Left Behind and very hostile to uh, a pre-tribulational rapture or even a pre-millennial uh, return of Christ. Dispensationalism itself is now a minority within a minority. Why is that? See, and I find it tragic. Particularly because the doctrine of imminency that's, that's hand in hand with the, the rapture doctrine is one of the best benefits we have as a stimulus, right? To stimulate us to love and good deeds, to, to keep short accounts, to stay in fellowship, to be serving the Lord, to endure in our testing, in, in anything that we're faced with, from finances to marriage to employment to whatever, uh, to politics, to flood, to, I mean, hurricane, whatever. Does it make a difference? If the trumpet were to sound today, would that affect your attitude with respect to this test you're going through? Do you think it makes a difference? In, uh, in these things? I think it does. So how does this truth shape my attitude, guide my thinking, choose my words, or drive my actions? So I think the so what question is a very useful question. And uh, I'm glad that Paul's asking it here when he says, what then? Then he says only this, in, every, in either way Christ is proclaimed. Either way Christ is proclaimed. And so both from the good guys and the bad guys, right? The, the believers with the right motivation and the believers with the wrong motivation. These guys are going to have gold, silver, and precious stones waiting for them at the judgment seat of Christ because they have the right motivation for what they're doing. The fire is going to strike their, their work and it's going, to be, uh, it's going to remain. It's going to be purified. The gold, silver, and precious stones will have all of the impurities removed and they will have a treasure. They will have a reward remaining. The, uh, the other crowd, the bad guys I'm calling them, the, the, I'll, I'll find better names, okay? Um, the good motivated, bad motivated crowd. Okay, the bad motivated crowd, they're doing the same gospel preaching. They may even do more quantity-wise. They may, maybe they preach more sermons, whatever. But see, the motivation's all wrong. So the, ma- the bad motivation crowd, they're, they're stacking up wood, hand stubble. They're doing the same thing, but it's wood, hand, stubble because of the motivation. And when the fire hits it at the judgment seat of Christ, it's gone. It's absolutely consumed. There's nothing that's purified because it's consumed. There's nothing that remains. They suffer loss, a loss of reward that was otherwise available to them had they been doing the service in, uh, in the proper way. Now, we have this eta eta expression, eta eta, and it's used twice. Um, we like to have either or, and we use different words for either or, we use different words for both and. Greek very commonly repeats the same, the same particle or the same conjunction and doubles it to, to do this. So we have an eta prophesi or eta aletheia, either in pretense, either in truth. Either way, all right? Either in pretense or in truth. 
in pretense, or which is a pretended truth, or aletheia, which is the real truth. Okay, and we'll have fun with this because uh, I love aletheia. <laughs> She's my daughter, and uh, the Greek noun aletheia is uh, is the term here for truth, and it's fun to to teach. But but we're going to focus mostly on the instrumental usages of aletheia, the instrumental uses of truth. When truth itself is a motivation, when truth becomes the the, the tool in in your hands or the means by which something gets done. Sometimes it even becomes a verb. If you can, we can truth one another. And that's uh, speaking the truth in love is, is when truth becomes a verb. And uh, we're supposed to do that as well. So whether in pretense or in truth. Now I don't want to repeat everything we did Wednesday night, but I guess um, if I have to pick one of these, I'll pick my favorite, which was the one from Acts 27. The, um, a pretense is, is a reason that's not the real reason. Okay, A pretense is a, is a stated reason that sounds good and is plausible and other people will accept it. And even if they know it's a lie, they'll at least play along with it. Because it, if it's a really good pretense, they can, they can join in the, in the fiction. Um, but we deal with prophasis, all right? P-R-O-P-H-A-S-I-S is the term. And, and, and it's, it's, it's kind of fun the way that it's, it's, uh, it's used here. It's not a very common term, uh, seven uses in the New Testament, but it relates well. It's got a marvelous connection with the other final terms that we've had previously. Uh, we were dealing with the manifest chains in Christ. We were dealing with phino and, and, and epiphino and some of the, the, uh, the, the terms for, uh, for manifest, right? When God manifests something and when He makes it manifest and He makes it clear, then we're accountable for everything God manifests. And, and we taught that. That was under point two, sub point B, if you have your notes and want to look back to that. So from that same final root that we were studying previously with phino and phanaros and phanarao and those things, um, now we've got kind of an antonym or an opposite or, or a, 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 something that hinders that, okay? And that's what prophino is. Prophino uh, or prophasis, um, you're, you're putting something up front. You're getting something out there up front, getting something out there first, getting something out there early. And the, the hope is if this explanation gets across first, and gets accepted, then the real story will never be manifest. Okay, no one will bother looking for the real uh, manifestation or the real reality because the the prophesis is out there first as the excuse or as the pretense. Okay, and so um, we have examples in the Gospels in Matthew twenty three fourteen, Mark twelve forty, Luke twenty forty seven. We looked at those on Wednesday as well as John 15, 22. Uh, my favorite one, though, is Acts 27, 30. And we'll just grab this here quickly and then move on. But in Acts 27, we've got um, the most famous of all of Paul's shipwrecks. He's been shipwrecked at least three times prior to this that he talks about in 2 Corinthians. But this is the only one that's narrated by Luke in the book of Acts. And so this is, at the very least, his fourth shipwreck, which would be enough for me to to um, put Paul on a no on a no travel list or something, you know, I would I would put Paul down on a list like we have no fly list today. I would put Paul on a no boat list or something with as many shipwrecks as he's been involved with. But um, anyway, in the process of, of being tossed about in the storms and all of this, there's a whole lot here that happens. And um, for most of these things, Paul uh, Paul would speak up and they would get and he would get ignored. 
And when you read through the whole chapter, Paul has something to say about everything, and, and they ignore him. Uh, the captain of the ship and the sailors, uh, you know, kind of dismiss him as not knowing what he's talking about. And then, um, but when this pretense comes up, that's when, uh, that's when uh, the soldiers at least realize, wait a minute, we probably should pay attention to this guy now at this point, because otherwise, otherwise they're dead. And uh, so down to verse 30 is where the word pretense occurs. And uh, how much of this do I want to read this morning? Um, anyway, just find the, uh, the, everything that Paul says. So in verse 9, Paul's talking. Uh, when considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous since the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them and say to them, men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and with great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what Paul was being said by Paul. Okay, And so that's kind of, eh, all right, that's nice. You know, preacher says something, well, okay, you know, what does he know? Let's listen to the captain of the ship and the sailors and the real experts in, in their field. And uh, so there it was. All right, and then uh, Paul's next message. I need a Bible with the words of Paul in red. <laughs> or find some kind of a color. Because then Paul has an I told you so message that comes up here. They start throwing stuff overboard and on the third day now they're jettisoning the cargo. And um, so then uh, Paul speaks up. In verse 21, when they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, men, you ought to have followed my advice <laughs> and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss, right? And this is clearly, this is the moment everybody loves the I told you so, you know, at a, at a moment like this. Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. This very night an angel of God, the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood before me saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted uh, you all those who are sailing with you. So that's just grace upon grace. Paul's guaranteed to survive because he has to stand before Caesar. But the fact that all these sailors are also going to survive is grace. It's, we call that blessing by association because they're connected in proximity to the Apostle Paul. So he says, therefore, keep up your courage, men. I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I've been told, but we must run aground on a certain island. Not just any island, but there's a particular place he needs to be. And so then the 14th night came as we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea about midnight. The sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. And so they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And a little further, they took another sounding, found it to be 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run aground somewhere, see this is basic seamanship that I'm thinking our modern Navy has lost a bit of in recent years. But, um, so they're taking their soundings and they're finding the depths of the water. And fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. That's the back end of the boat, right? All right. I got all these Navy guys in the church. I might as well use them for uh, cross-reference. All right. I could never have survived in the Navy. I would have been horrible. Uh, verse 30, but as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and had let down the ship's boat into the sea, now here's the pretense. 
on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow. Okay? Is it a bow or a bow? The front end of the ship is a bow. Okay. So they got the anchors already off the back end of the ship, and now they, they say, here's the excuse, oh, we're going to go attach additional anchors here on the front end of the ship. Okay? And it's just a lie. They're letting the boat down because so, they're, they're getting out. Okay? And uh, so it's a pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow. So Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut, now they decide it's a good time to listen to Paul. <laughs> the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. You know, just chop it off, the boat falls and say, all right, here we are. <laughs> We're all in the same boat now. So that's what's going to happen. Anyway, there's more that happens. This is, this is, I just, I enjoy this chapter. It makes me laugh. They uh, survive the shipwreck. They land on the uh, beach and just in time to get bitten by a viper. And uh, good stuff there. Anyway, so we know what a pretense is, all right? We know what a pretense is and other pretenses that are found. Paul told the Thessalon- uh, Thessalonians that he wasn't there as with a pretense for greed. How many preachers show up acting like they care for the people, but what they're really about is just collecting the money and then they're gone kind of a thing. Pretense for greed in First Thessalonians uh, 2 and verse 5. All right, so that's the one motivation. On the other hand, we have truth. Okay? There's pretense or truth. And so the, the wrongly motivated crowd was operating under a pretense. The rightly motivated crowd was motivated by the truth. And that's what we're going to deal with this morning. Truth. Aletheia, of course, is the noun. Aletheia. Where's the accent on the A? Aletheia. Okay. Uh, number 225 in the Strong's Concordance. That's A-L-E-T-H-E-I-A has 109 uses, so you could spend a while finding, you think the Bible's concerned with truth? <laughs> you know, it's used over 100 times in the New Testament, much more in the Old Testament. Um, but we're going to focus on strictly on the dative case. Remember that you could have, there's different cases in Greek, nominative, accusative, genitive, dative. And as we focus strictly on the dative case, not only does that narrow down the field of the number of, of words we have to look at, but also it helps us to pinpoint the usage which is parallel to the usage here. And when we're talking about the dative case, specifically we're speaking about the, the case of sphere, the case of realm, the case of uh, domain or instrument or motivation. And that's what we have here. We have motivation and instrument being, uh, being emphasized in this passage. So as an instrumental dative indicating both motive and means... That's uh, a usage that we would find the, the Greek language would use the dative case for, all right? For whatever means by which you came to church this morning. Did you come by car? Did you come by uh, boat? Did you come by, you know, uh, helicopter? Okay? Came by diesel, right? All right. Uh, whatever you came by, we, we have a vehicle, or we have an instrument, or we have a means. Sometimes it speaks to motivation. I think in this context, the... Uh, Clearly, uh, it's motivation involved as it speaks of slander and greed and, and uh, pretense and so forth. So how can truth be an instrument? How can truth be a tool? How can truth be a means? Surprisingly, or maybe not, um, but 
amazingly, there are several uses of, of aletheia in the dative case that demonstrate how it's very common that truth is a means, truth is an instrument, truth is a method or a motivation. And, and fundamentally it should become all of our motivation, and I believe it will be if it's not already, uh, by the time we finish looking at these verses. <laughs> all right? Uh, but truth as an instrument, you will never regret using the truth as an instrument. Let me tell you, ever. The truth, as, as, as we'll see it in these passages and as it's illustrated in different ways, sometimes the truth hurts, but you will not regret using the truth in the manner that God has intended for the truth to be used. And uh, the, the whole motivation to shade the truth, to color it, to, to lie, to uh, hide the truth because you don't want to hurt somebody, you're not, you're, you're, you are hurting them. You're hurting them by deceiving them, by uh, not presenting the truth. And love will not do such a thing. Love re- does not rejoice in unwickedness, but, uh, wickedness, but rejoices with the truth. And uh, if you're going to have the biblical definition of agape love, you've got to start there in uh, 1 Corinthians 13. So um, here's what we're looking at as an instrument now. And some of these are debatable. You may cross some of these off. You may write it down after we look at it and say, eh, I wouldn't take it that way. But I, I think that they should be taken that way in all the instances that I've listed. So starting with Matthew 22, and maybe some of them are debatable, and down the road I may change my mind on some of these, but um, Matthew 22, 16, and uh, we have to have some caution here because this is, these are the words out of the mouth of some snakes, <laughs> all right? Uh, but even in, coming from their mouth, they, they still betray a reality. And they betray a reality similar to when Job's accusers show up, when uh, a lot of the things Satan says, that, that you know, here's a liar, but he includes things that are undeniably real. Anyway, you, you see what I'm talking about here. In uh, Matthew twenty two fifteen, the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said, right? And so we've got a, we've got a motivation very similar to the, the, the crowd we're looking at in Philippians. They're wrongly motivated. And uh, they've got an objective, and the objective is to find a trap, find some kind of grounds, something out of his mouth they can use as an accusation. And so they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians. And that's extraordinary too. When did Pharisees ever cooperate with Herodians? Okay, well, this, they can find a common enemy in the Christ they both hate saying, teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Okay? I want to make sure I read that in the right tone of voice. This is pure, this is Eddie Haskell, right? From, from Leave it to Beaver. This is pure, um, just buttering up the teacher, buttering up whoever you're trying to flatter. Okay? And so they've got a question for him. And before they spring the question, which is their trap, before they spring the question, they want to they make it seem like they have all this great respect for him. All right? So, yeah, it's phony and it's wrong. But as they use it, what do they betray? They betray a truth of his ministry, a truth of how he spoke. And I don't think anyone would disagree that Jesus Christ was truthful and taught the way of God in truth. That's, that's not even de- debatable. And so there it is. And so, uh, we, teacher, we know that you are truthful. And then you have an adjective there, cognate form to Aletheia. 
you are truthful, and you teach the way of God, and here's our instrumental use, in truth. Date of case, and that could be spoken of as a sphere, you know, in the realm of truth, or as a means, I think it's better to take it as a means or an instrument, uh, modifying the, uh, the verb didasco to teach. You are truthful and you teach the way of God in truth, and you defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. And you see, what's a great enemy of truth? Partiality. The uh, schizophrenic, uh, two-faced approach to having a, you know, having a, a, a prophesis, but then having a real reason. Or showing partiality by shading the truth for certain people. See, truth only applies to some. I don't want to offend this person because he's a big giver in the church, and so I'll go ahead and compromise a little bit of truth in his case because, uh, you know, I want to keep him around. He's, he's, uh, he's, uh, he's big bucks in the church or something. See, no, you don't show partiality. If you're teaching the truth, if truth is an instrument, then truth is truth. It's that which conforms to reality. We're not allowed to claim our own personal reality. All right. So that's Matthew twenty-two sixteen. We have John 4. God is spirit. He must be worshiped, right? You know, the, you know the verse. It's an instrumental use. He must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. And here's Jesus talking to this Samaritan woman. And uh, even after she's been exposed, even after all her sins have been laid out there, She's not offended. She's not, uh, you know, looking for a safe space because of the microaggression. She's actually thrilled to be face-to-face with a real prophet. For the first time in her life, she is standing in front of a real prophet. And she knows she's going to get some questions answered. (laughs) She knows she's going to have truth. Maybe the first man in her life to tell her the truth. Who knows? And uh, so in verse 19, when she says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you, or you people, your fathers say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. You know, the Samaritans created their own Pentateuch. They created their own religious center. They had their own holy mountain on Mount Gerizim. And, uh, of course, the Hebrew Pentateuch uh, made the big deal out of Jerusalem and Zion, and that's where the, the temple was and, and all the rest. So now she wants her question answered. You know, are we right? Are you guys right? What are we doing here? And so Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. All right. In fact, this temple is on the verge of destruction. 70 AD, the Romans will destroy it. Uh, the, the, Isra- the stewardship of Israel is going to be suspended, put on hold anyway. A new mystery age is on the, on the way in which... Uh, Every believer, as a believer priest, wherever he goes, will be worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. So now that basically answers her question, of course, that the Samaritan Pentateuch is, is not God-breathed and inspired. It, it's a useful translation to compare if you're doing a, a text criticism study. Um, but it's not uh, God-breathed and inspired. And when they changed it from Jerusalem to Mount Gerizim, that's totally wrong. You know, like when the Muslims change from Isaac to Ishmael, the son that Abraham was going to uh, murder or going to kill, sacrifice. Uh, the Quran says that it was Ishmael that Abraham was going to sacrifice on that mountain. And, uh, you know, so 
you get some kind of thing written centuries later that changes one of the details, that's clearly uh, wrong. So, uh, yeah, they change it to uh, to Mount Gerizim, and that's wrong. And so he, he answers that. But again, back to this, uh, an hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. See, the biggest problem with ritual is that all those legalists had abandoned the spirit and truth in their in their worship. See, we worship in spirit and truth. And both of those are dative case. Both of those, uh, I believe, are instrumental, dative of means. Uh, they could be taken in a locative way as a sphere or a realm. Um, and we can debate that. All right. Also, is that Holy Spirit? Does it require the Holy Spirit to worship? If so, then no Old Testament believer ever worship because the permanent dwelling of the Holy Spirit is our blessing in the church age. And other than rare exceptions, believers in the Old Testament did not receive the permanent dwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. So how did they worship in spirit and in truth? I believe it's with reference to the living human spirit with respect to a born-again believer. Everyone who is born again, Old Testament, New Testament alike, receives a living human spirit, and it's through that living spirit that we worship, that we worship God. Obviously, Old Testament believers worship. All right. So, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. And this is a marvelous text too if you ever want to evaluate Old Testament soteriology. What do they know when they place their faith in the coming Messiah? See, we believe that Jesus came and died on the cross and rose again. But we believe in Christ for eternal life, the Christ who came. Old Testament saints looked forward. They believed in the Messiah who was coming. The Messiah who was coming to do what? Well, they knew some, they knew little, they knew more, they knew less, but they all placed their faith in the coming Messiah. See, she's already a believer. I know that Messiah is coming. That's where her faith has been for some time. He who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Excited about him being a teacher. How about that? Okay. You know, Judas Iscariot and a lot of the other disciples, they were excited for him to be a military leader, throw off the bonds of Rome, give us freedom and all the politics of what Messiah was going to do. This woman was excited about Bible class. Wow. And so Jesus said to her, I am. I who speak to you am. I am He. Okay. Anyway, so there's an instrumental use and uh, worshiping in spirit. God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And these are instrumental uses, both of spirit and of truth. 1 Corinthians 13, 6. Another instrumental use. using truth as an instrument or a tool if you prefer. Either metaphor works um, for the dative case. Uh, either an instrument or a tool. An instrument is a tool. A tool is an instrument. Just depends. All right. Weapons are tools and instruments. 1 Corinthians 13, 6. This is, of course, the great love paragraph we have on household decorations. Love is patient, love is kind, is not jealous, does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own. See? And so, again, as you read through this list, remember that wrongly motivated crowd. They were all about the selfish ambition. They were all about the jealousy. They were, they were seeking to cause Paul... 
uh, uh, grief, right? So as you look at all this, um, none of that was done in love, <laughs> okay? So patient, kind, not jealous, they were. Does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own. I believe they were totally seeking their own. And uh, the text tells us that, totally seeking their own. Is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. That verse right there, that verse right there tells you everything you need to know about our generation and the culture wars going on right now and why we don't march in the pride parades because we don't celebrate in unrighteousness. Love rejoices with the truth. And when they use love to try to defend their perversion, that's not love. Not by this definition. You know, you redefine it if you want, but that's your redefinition. Redefine marriage, that's your redefinition. Redefine everything you're doing, that's your definition. And we're not free to do that. We're not co-editors of the Word of God. All right. So, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. And uh, that, that phrase, with the truth, is that, is that in proximity with, together with? You know, truth is rejoicing, so I'm rejoicing with truth. No, it's an instrumental use. Rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. So an instrumental use of rejoicing, or of truth. 2 Corinthians 7.14 And you, you recall uh, the first half of 2 Corinthians was written before Paul uh, was reunited with Titus. And in the first half of the book, uh, Paul is fretting over Titus's absence and, uh, and blaming himself even <laughs> that, he, uh, that Titus is missing and the Corinthians probably killed him and it's all Paul's fault for sending him there. And it's, 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 there's a lot of turmoil there, which caused Paul to leave when he left Ephesus, when he wouldn't stay at Troas, even though there was fruit there, he said no thanks and didn't teach class when he was invited and sailed across to Macedonia. He wouldn't stay even though Jesus gave him an open door in Troas. He had no rest for his spirit, not finding my brother Titus, so he boarded a ship and went off to, to Macedonia. Paul was in a lot of turmoil in the first half of this book as he wrote it. And then he uh, was reunited with Titus. And so we see that here. In fact, this chapter describes it in verse 5. Even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. We were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. And sometimes that spiritual battle wages so harsh that it, it, it hurts your soul, it hurts your spirit, and then you have bodily uh, consequences as well. You end up getting you know, uh, a uh, somatic type thing and, and uh, you throw up and you get sick and it's just it's horrendous. All right. But God who comforts the depressed. See? I love it. People try to tell me that Bible says nothing about mental health. What are you talking about? What Bible are you reading? <clears throat> God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice even more. See, God's provision for our mental health, our spiritual well-being, 
the tending of souls is entrusted to shepherds, and it takes place within the context of brothers and sisters in a flock. Brothers and sisters that care for one another, that comfort one another, that serve one another. And he doesn't have to pay $120 per hour to uh, talk to an unbeliever about his problems. Okay? All right. So the reunion there, and it was huge, okay? And uh, so he goes into some other things there, and then he gets down to verse uh, 13. We've been comforted, and besides our comfort, we rejoiced even more, much more, for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. And that would have been prior to the absence. That would have been prior to the separation after writing 1 Corinthians and boasting to uh, Paul, uh, boasting to Titus about the Corinthians as most likely Titus carried the, the book of 1 Corinthians to Corinth. Um, so if anything I boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be in truth. And so two uses there of Aletheia in verse 14. And uh, I take those as instrumental, boasting in truth and um, speaking in truth as an instrument, as a means for what they boast and what they speak. And so his affection abounds all the more toward you as he remembers the obedience of you all. Okay, So boasting in truth. You know, uh, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. That's going to be boasting in truth. It's uh, the carnal boasting that's uh, not really... Uh, <laughs> the, the connection with truth is sometimes very tenuous when it comes to carnal boasting. And uh, you listen to the boast and go, eh, yeah, okay. And then, and then you find out the truth and realize, okay, that's why I was dubious. I was skeptical of that boasting. There was no... no uh, but see, if it's true, is it boasting? If it's in Christ, is it boasting? As you boast in the Lord? All right. Where's the motivation? So that's 2 Corinthians. How about Ephesians 5 9? Ephesians 5 9. You were formerly darkness, but now you were light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And so, in describing our walk in the Christian way of life, we have a manner, we have a means, we have motive. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Dative on all of these, dative case. Goodness and righteousness and truth. Are these spheres that we walk in? Are these instruments that we employ? Or both? See, a lot of times the, when, the, when the language geeks start arguing back and forth, back and forth, and they're, they're going to die on a hill insisting that it has to be sphere or insisting that it has to be means, um, a lot of those debates are superfluous because they can literally be both simultaneously, both in the sphere of truth and by means of truth at the same time. All right. So the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. That's why we say you have to, if you're going to do the right thing, it's got to be done in the right way. It's got to be done for the right reasons. And if you do the right thing in the wrong way, it's wrong. If you do the right thing in the right way, but for the wrong reason, it's wrong. It's got to be the right thing in the right way for the right reasons. And uh, that's what you get when you uh, have uh, goodness, righteousness, and truth here as your dative of means. All right, 1 Timothy 2.7. 1 Timothy 2.7. Verse 14. 
don't know, you can prove a point, then you can really prove it. <laughs> you can reinforce it. If Scripture makes a point 20 times over, why does it make a point so many times? I like making the point 20 times over. Trying to have the same kind of impact or trying to have the same kind of emphasis. 1 Timothy 2.7 uh, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles, and here's our two uh, datives here, in faith and truth. As a teacher of the Gentiles, in faith and truth. That one may be the weakest of all. That one may be better to take as sphere, as a realm. Um, how do you handle the in? Uh, keeping in mind that in Greek, in can also be by, can also be a, a means, doesn't have to be a location. So as a teacher of the Gentiles, by faith and by truth, in faith and in truth. Either way, <coughs> I think we could, we could fight about it and uh, each one of us will be insisting we're right. But either way, isn't it not fundamentally both? Don't I teach by faith? Don't you learn by faith? And are we not teaching in the faith? As a, as a sphere, as a realm. Same thing with truth. Uh, teaching by truth, learning by truth in the realm of truth. I think we can take it uh, both ways. The same context, by the way, as we back up, God desires all men to be saved and what? To come to the knowledge of the truth. And that's, uh, that's why we're here. That's why we're in class. That's why we're growing. That's what a disciple truly does. All right? All right, just a few more. Second Peter. They're not all Pauline, and we should have known that because uh, we had some of the gospel references, and we have this one here in Second Peter, and then we really have the concentration in uh, John's epistles, Second Peter one twelve. <laughs> so, um, I think Peter had access to Galatians and was impacted by Galatians when he writes about these character traits here in uh, verses 5 and following. And then uh, he says in verse 9, he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. And uh, so this takes us back to what I was talking about before. Those bad guys aren't technically bad guys, and I should quit calling them that. They're saved, but they're wrongly motivated. And why are they wrongly motivated? Is it, is it prolonged carnality? Is it, have they forgotten what it means to be saved? Uh, are they blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification for his former sins? And that's the thing. We, we go into prolonged carnality and we lose track of the grace that saved us. And we lose track of the righteousness we're supposed to be walking in. And then we substitute our righteousness, which is better than the next guy's righteousness, and we think that our relative righteousness counts for something. And then before we know it, we're all involved in these systems of legalism, and we are as carnal as, as the, 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 the flaming fornicator, right? I mean, they're just as carnal in, uh, in that way. So we don't want to be blind or short-sighted, and we don't want to forget our salvation. That's why I'm thankful our hymn of the month is about being happy to be saved and celebrating what a great day it was when, when God saved us. So therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. In other words, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Live out your faith in the application of the Word of God. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Do you want to walk in abundantly or do you want to walk in uh, scraping, scraping by? you want to walk in uh, with uh, the judgment seat of Christ burning everything up and 
there you are in your naked resurrection body because all your, well, you got your robe, but all of your other rewards have been, uh, have been uh, burned up. Verse 12, therefore I will always be ready to remind you of these things because preachers love the repetition and believers need it. Uh, ready to remind you of these things even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. Established in the truth, established by the truth, established as a means. What is it that fixes a congregation solidly other than the truth of the Word of God? And so um, I like to take this as a dative of means. They were established by the truth. A congregation that's grounded in solid Bible teaching is what we're seeing here. And yet they need to be reminded. They need to have the reviews. I consider it right as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. Ha! I'm not dead yet, so I'm going to preach it again. That's what Paul says. As long as I'm in this earthly tent to stir up your mind, to stir you up by way of reminder. Anyway, to be established in the truth. I find that interesting. All right. And then uh, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, every epistle John wrote. And he stresses this. 1 John 3 and verse 18. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Okay. Both are instrumental uses. The deeds, the things we do, the works we do uh, are expressions of love. In fact, if you're not doing any deeds, you wonder, you know, do you really love? You can say it all day long, but what are you doing? Okay. God so loved the world that He gave. Christ so loved the world that He gave. The first church of Revelation was told to uh, they left their first love, they need to return to their first love and the first deeds that they did at first. Love uh, is, is oftentimes connected to deeds in the Scriptures. And so um, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Again, back to the illustration from 1 Corinthians 13. When you tolerate sin and when you approve sin and when you tell the person, oh, that's okay, I love you, you're not loving them because love is in truth. Okay? And the truth is that sin is sin and righteousness is righteousness. Uh, second John. Second and third John are just single chapter books. So I have a personal pet peeve anytime somebody uses a chapter number in second John or third John or Jude or Philemon or Obadiah or what have you. It's not second John chapter one, verse one. It's second John verse one the elder to the chosen lady and her children, whoever she was, whoever they were. I've got a theory. I've got an opinion. I've got lots of opinions. Uh, but no one can totally prove it, so I won't fight with anybody over it. But who was John entrusted with at the cross? Okay. Who else might we think of as a chosen lady? Who was chosen to birth the humanity of our Savior? Makes sense to me. All right. To the chosen lady and her children whom I love in truth. Again, it's an instrumental use. Again, it's connected to the verb agapao, to love. Okay, Whom I love in truth. Whom I love in truth. Not only I, but also all who know the truth. 
There was a promise about all women calling her blessed. Okay? No, I'm not going to become Roman Catholic and start worshiping the Virgin Mother, all right? But I do, my, my opinion, my theory, my idea for Second John is, and, and most pastors think I'm crazy about that, but anyway. Maybe I'll get to speak in a conference someday. Um, that's just verse 1. What about verse 3? Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father, from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love, or by truth and by love. Both of these are dative case nouns. Dative case nouns, feminine nouns. Truth is feminine. Love is feminine. All right. Verse 4. I was very glad to find some of your children walking by truth or walking in truth, just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. So I take all those as instrumental uses. How about Third John? Third John, verse 1, 3, 4, and 8. Yikes. It's a short book, but it's got a lot of truth in it. First one, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whoever he was, okay, traditions and arguments and speculations aside, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, by truth, instrumental use. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. Do you ever connect your, your health prayers to your soul prayers? You know, somebody's got cancer, somebody's got this, somebody's got that, somebody's got whatever. And, and, and so I hear a lot of health prayers, but do we ever uh, put that in tandem with the condition of their soul? Because the outer man perishes, the inner man is renewed day by day. And if the inner man's not being renewed by day by day, if you got a believer that's not under teaching or not being, not growing or just in renegade carnality or whatever, um, shouldn't that be the first prayer? And then let them recover from that and get their soul in a healthy place. And then then maybe they can survive the sickness or whatever the physical thing is. Okay, Same thing with unbelievers. I, I have a hard time praying health requests for an unbeliever. I, I want them to get saved. I want them to hear the gospel. And whatever else, if they live or die, or whatever else, if the disease is cured or whatnot, what, what, who cares if the cancer goes away, but he dies and goes to hell? What, what are we doing? And that's why this is such a powerful verse, I love this, that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth, that is, how you are walking in truth. The verb is peripateo, the verb is walking, the, the description is, is uh, I think, adverbial, I think it's instrumental, the dative of means, walking in truth. If you're not in truth, you're not walking. I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. And, and there you have it, you know, a pastor that leaves and comes back and sees, you know, Ralph Braun's delighted as anything that a church he used to pastor is still teaching the truth. There's still uh, believers hungry for teaching. And of course, that's a joy. And in regard, and you know this, if you've got adult children, is it, it doesn't matter to you if they're doctors and lawyers or, or whatever they are or whatever their career path is or whatever you know, the, the tax bracket they might be in or the square footage of their house. Does any of that matter if they're not walking in the truth? Okay, but if they are walking in the truth, praise God. And, and uh, regardless, I mean, that's the, that's the mark of generational success. 
You've passed on a heritage to the next generation and now you're praying for them to pass it on to their next generation. And, uh, and, and there you go. So I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. And if they're not, then you have the sorrow that Proverbs speak of, that uh, the foolish son, right? The wise son makes his father glad, but a foolish son is uh, the other. All right. Verse uh, 3, 4, and then the final one is 8. Um, talking about these teachers and those that went forth. Verse 5 says, Beloved, you're acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, especially when they are strangers, and they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. Imagine you have an itinerant preacher that comes through town, a missionary, an evangelist, a pastor, and you don't know him from Adam, but it's clear that he teaches the truth. <laughs> it's clear that he loves the Lord. And as you fellowship in truth, it's clear. And uh, we should support such men. We should send them on a way worthy of God. You know, how, how do you send Jesus? How do you receive Jesus? You know, do you put them up at the Four Seasons or at the Motel 6? What do, you know, what do we, uh, not to pick on a particular chain, but I'm just saying there's a contrast, okay, do we, do we roll out the red carpet? Do we treat them as worthy of all honor and respect? Or do we put them in... Anyway. They send them in a man, manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. See, we don't take any money from unbelievers knowingly. Okay? Therefore we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. You notice that? Dative of means, dative of instrument, and, and no, we're not traveling to Zambia or Uganda or wherever, but we are fellow workers with the truth as we support such men, as we fund them, as we pray for them, as we love them, as we, uh, as we uh, read their newsletters and, and wrestle with them and pray with them and all these things. We become fellow workers in truth, by truth, in truth with the truth. We become fellow workers truthing. Okay? Dative of means, dative of motive. So, pretense or truth? Pretense or truth? That's the question in whatever we do. For the pastor, for the deacons, for the Sunday school teachers, for the piano player, for the, 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 the janitor, for anybody, the, the yard keeper, whatever. You can do it for the glory of Jesus Christ in truth, or you can say you're doing it for the glory of Jesus Christ as a pretense because the truth is far from that in carnality, in pride, in selfishness, in whatever. Okay, And if you can lie to your spouse and fool your pastor and whatever else you're going to do, you can make a big splash and all the, the ignorant people will be impressed until the bonfire of the judgment seat when all of it will be exposed. Okay, And that's... Uh, it is what it is. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this message. And I pray that we would understand the contrast from pretense to truth. And uh, we would focus on the instrumental use and see all the different ways, Father, that truth is an instrument, is a tool, is a weapon. And Father, how it is that we employ truth in love applications, how we employ truth in giving applications, how we employ truth in teaching applications. And uh, truth is more than just a concept for academic pursuits. It's, 
It's the means of love. It's the means of, uh, of other external works, Father. So I thank you for uh, the passages of the New Testament that make that clear. And most of all, Father, I thank you for the church age in which we live. Father, an age of the past completed work of Jesus Christ and the present ongoing uh, power that comes through the, uh, the spirit and in truth that we have in our day and age. So Father, I thank you for these things and I give you the praise and glory in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.